Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Today, we have seven questions because the first question is a doozy. There were like six follow-ups. There's a lot to talk about. So let's just jump right into it. Now, question number one says, Katie, why do I feel like I'm lying when thinking about opening up about past trauma? Hmm. Good question. I really want to open up to my therapist about a past memory of me being sexually assaulted by my brother. But the problem is... I didn't have that memory until I was sexually assaulted again some years later by someone else. Because the memory of my brother seemed to come out of nowhere and only happened once I found myself doubting that it actually happened. Talking openly about it makes me feel guilty, like I'm lying, even though there's nothing to suggest that that, that the events I now can remember didn't happen. Should I tell my therapist? Okay, so much to talk about here. Let's go to the top. Why can we feel like we're lying when thinking about opening up about past trauma. There's a lot at play here. Number one and the most common is the fact that when we're traumatized, we minimize and invalidate the experience in order to continue living. I know we forget that a lot, but it's too overwhelming. The thought that someone who we're related to, who's supposed to love us and care for us, maybe even protect us, would harm us, can be too much for us to tolerate. And so in order for us to keep living our lives, right, we probably still had to live with this person Um, we couldn't like get away from them. It wasn't really safe for us to process the trauma. We stuffed it down, minimized and invalidated. And now even that the memories have come back, that minimization and validation is so strong. It's like, there's no way, uh uh-uh, right? Because it doesn't make sense for someone who's supposed to care for us, love us, protect us, that that they would harm us. That doesn't make sense, right? Even though that's what happened, unfortunately. And so just take a beat. This is a very normal response. It's okay. It doesn't mean you're lying. It's normal to feel that and be concerned about that. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Okay. Now the second component of the question is, should I still tell my therapist? Yes. Now what you're experiencing is incredibly common when it comes to trauma processing and especially starting to do that work in therapy. It's normal to want to minimize for the reasons that I said, but then there's also this component of repressed memory. Now, if you haven't read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, I encourage you to, it's great. But there's a, a huge chunk of research that he references when he talks about the fact that we can trust repressed memories. And they did this research study, or not, he didn't do it, but he references a research study done on like 134 women who shared in the similar experience. I forget what trauma they were involved in, but their stories never changed. And even the ones that couldn't remember at the time and remembered, it stayed the same over time. So long story short, you can trust those kind of repressed and then all of a sudden they reveal themselves memories. Those are things that we can trust. Now, another piece is that when we are traumatized, different things happen in our brain, right? Along the lines of like our limbic system, which houses our amygdala, it like sounds the alarm, it shuts off our prefrontal cortex. There's certain components of our brain that get more active and others that get less active. In this process, the memory storage can be different. There are tons of different research studies out there. I did a bunch of um, research on this for my book, Traumatized. But essentially, research shows that they believe trauma memories can be stored in a certain part of the brain. They believe the hippocampus might be where most of these are stored. Now, other memories can be stored there as well, but specifically, this is like the area of the brain that's the most active when we're processing traumas. 
So they think that that might be why they're more difficult to recall or why some of the memories like never come back fully. It could be because of where they're stored. Now there's also another piece just to give you the information that I know. When we're dissociated, which often happens when we're traumatized, right? If we are threatened, what's happening to us is too much for us to process in the moment. Our brain pulls the ripcord on reality to help get us through, right? Because we feel so scared. Why stay present for the harmful thing to happen? We might as well dissociate. It pulls us out to save us from it a little bit. Gives us a little buffer between what's happening and, you know, ourselves. Now that distance can mean our brain never fully forms a memory. So if any of you out there are like, I don't have any of my memories come back. That's like flashes or I have no memory at all, but I know something happened, whatever it is. When maybe you have the symptoms of PTSD, but no memory, right? That can be because of that dissociation. So I just want you to know that that's why trauma memories in general can be really difficult to recall, difficult to sit with, why we can feel like we're lying. But overall, just talk to your therapist about this process. We don't have to only talk to our therapist about the trauma itself and the things we want to work on. That's great. But for most of us, we're not even there yet, right? We kind of need to talk along our process of wanting to do that. So we can tell her like, this memory didn't even pop up until I was sexually assaulted again. And it just makes me feel like maybe it's not real and I'm feeling guilty. And, you know, just talk about your process. You don't have to know the answer. You don't have to understand why it is what it is. That's kind of part of the the job of therapy is to take what we're experiencing and what we know, talk about it and try to make sense of it because this is very normal. Your therapist can help you kind of work your way and navigate your way through it and slowly allow you to feel comfortable enough to then open up about what occurred with your brother. But be patient with yourself. It takes time. And we have to feel, you know, at least neutral, not triggered or safe enough in therapy to talk about it. So give yourself that time. Now, there was a comment on this says, hello, Katie, I had an add on for that, for this, if it's okay. So I was sexually assaulted at 17, which I've already opened up to my therapist a little bit about already. Not verbally, though. Still struggling with being verbal about some of my past with her after four months of seeing her. Four months isn't that long. Sometimes it takes us time, right? A little more time to get comfortable. But recently, I've been having a bunch of other BS popping up in my head from when I was younger. So my question is, is it sexual assault when an eight or nine-year-old boy touches a four or five-year-old girl in a fondling manner while playing house? Just curious, as we both were quite young. Obviously, that memory isn't as vivid as my memory at 17. So I'm not sure if I should even mention that to my therapist or not. You should. We'll talk about this. Although these other memories that have come to light. Oh, along with these other memories that have come to light. Also, is it normal for old memories to creep back after you open up some in therapy because I feel like ever since I spit out some of my past other stuff has just randomly been popping up out of nowhere thanks so much um whether you get to this question or not by the way Roxy is adorable she is thank you and I got to it so don't worry okay yes that is um sexual abuse and I, I said sexual assault when the person said SA so I think it was sexual abuse I think it was two and I'm sorry I said sexual assault but not that it really matters but I'm just for consistency with the SA. People write SA and some people mean sexual assault. Some people mean sexual abuse. So in this question, 
when an eight or nine-year-old boy touches a four or five-year-old girl, there are a few things at play here. Number one, they're older and their age and size give them uh, control and power over you as the younger. Also, their knowledge of sex, because it sounds like this was fondling manner, so their knowledge of sex is gives them power over you. Now, what happened to you sounds like it was done in an abusive manner. And I've talked about this before. I forget which podcast it was, but I had someone in our community who was so kind. She sent me a link out to this PDF that talks about like what's normal childhood behavior and what is not. And natural curiosity of children, I don't want to step on that, make that out to be something that it's not because children are curious about their bodies. They, you know, children will touch themselves and and be curious about what other kids have or don't have. And that's natural in development. But when there's fondling, when it's sexual in nature, when there's um, coercion or you don't feel like you can say no, there's like manipulation involved, that's when we start to question and we start to think that it could be sexual abuse. Now, I obviously don't know all of the details, but yes, I would 100% bring this up with your therapist because at the very least, regardless of what we want to call it, it was traumatizing to you. And therefore, it's important for you and your therapy to talk about it and to come to terms with it and to process it through at your own pace. Okay? So there's that piece. Now, the reason that memories tend to, we open up about one thing and then the other memories flutter in is because it's it's kind of akin to what I was talking about before, earlier in this question about like trauma memories and where they're stored. When we start digging around in there, it's almost like we've opened up a big closet that hasn't been opened in like 20 years. And there's like cobwebs and uh, and we sort through it. We're pulling things out and we're like, oh, this is the box that I wanted. This is the memory I wanted to recall. But in doing that, we've stirred up all these other memories because we're like, is it this one? No. Is it this? No. 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 Oh, it's this one. And so that's why when we recall one, others can start cropping up. Also, we might, again, feel safe enough so the that guard that probably kept that door shut on all those memories has lightened and feels like it's safe and it's okay at least to let a little bit out. And so that's what will start happening. Even in my own therapy, I've been doing EMDR here for a few months. When we start talking about a specific thing, let's say like my grandma, with that memory, other things will start coming up during the week. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot that we did this, that, and the other. And oh, I forgot my brother actually wasn't there. I thought he was. You know, things like that will happen. And my therapist let me know when we were starting this work. She's like, that can happen, that you'll you'll remember one thing and then you'll think that's it and other stuff will come up. So if other things come up, just take note of it and bring it up at our next session. And so that's what I've been doing. And that's what I would do with your therapist as well. Okay, now there was another question um, says, yes. So yes to the first question. How do you deal with the shame of sharing confusing memories? My dad slept in my bedroom for years during childhood, and I have so many body memories and flashbacks about being abused by him. But every time I share some of this with my therapist, I feel so much shame because most of it happened when I was asleep. So the memories are not 100% clear. To be truthful, we start with our process, just like I said. No one expects you to share things right away, to know how you want to talk about it. You can just share it like you shared it with me. I was asleep most of the time, so it's, it's kind of hazy and makes me think that maybe I should have fought him off. Or Shame thoughts are very common and they, they unfortunately coincide with trauma 
almost 100% of the time that I should have done this. Something must be wrong with me. That's why they did this. That's why I was victimized by this, right? Instead of acknowledging, hey, someone in my life that should have cared for me, protected me, loved me, abused me instead. And that fucking sucks. And I know it's hard and it's hard to admit that. It's hard to think about that. It's hard to talk about it. So the best advice I have is to just start where you are. Like tell your therapist what you told me. Now I have just a lot of shame thoughts. I have these confusing memories. I don't even know if they're full because I was asleep. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know exactly what happened. You don't even have to know how you want to talk about it. You could even just say, I'm feeling really ashamed of my trauma. I'm having a hard time talking about it because I feel like I did something to cause it. Most trauma memories are not 100% clear. Some people's are. I don't want anybody to feel judged. Everyone's experience is different. I have patients who remember like fuzzy nothing and patients who remember clear as day like it happened yesterday. So everybody's different. But a lot of the time, our memories are not clear for the reasons I talked about before. The dissociation, the storage of trauma memories, the fact that they're not fully processed, you know, can it's like they're scattered on the floor of our brain, not filed away for easy recall. And so... Dealing with the shame is really just to start talking about it. I could tell you it's not your fault until I'm blue in the face, but you won't believe me because there's some kind of story in there for you. And I know this part kind of sucks, but the only way through shame is to be courageous and to start talking about what happened. Even though you're scared, even though you think it's your fault, just be honest about that. Be like, I'm scared to say this. I feel like it's my fault, but here's what happened. That's the way out. I know it sucks, but if Brene Brown has taught me anything, it's a, the antithesis of shame is courage. Now, there's another uh, question or comment on here. It says, I often feel as if I'm lying to my therapist, not about my history of childhood physical abuse, but about how it affects me. I want to stop there because this is interesting. <clears throat> when I was reading this question, I was like, hmm, you think you're lying about your own experience. I encourage you strongly to journal about other times in your life when you felt this way, or if you've ever been told, maybe because of the physical abuse, I'm suspicious and suspecting of that, you've been told that you aren't really hurt, that's not really upsetting, you're making this out to be too big of a deal, you're too sensitive, geez, you're minimized, you're invalidated. Has someone ever done that to you? Or did someone act in a way that created that experience inside yourself? I think that's where this is coming from. And again, I would tell your therapist this, that I feel like I'm lying about how it affects me, not about the abuse itself, but like my response to it. We don't have to, again, have the answers, be able to talk about things. We can just tell our therapist what's coming up for us. You know, in session, I wanted to lie about this. That's why I said to my therapist once, I was like, you asked me this question and I wanted to lie. And that's why I didn't say anything because I wasn't ready to tell you the truth. That's the, that's the truth. She was like, interesting, you know, what, what were you afraid of? And that's a great question. If I said it, what was I afraid was going to happen? Did I, th- I thought it would change her perception of me. Why do I care what my therapist thinks of me? Hello, recovering people, please. Right. Do a little research, be a detective for yourself. Just a little bit about what's coming up for you and how, you know, how this is affecting you and why you minimize that. Okay, now back to the rest of our question. It says, I know the physical abuse happened, but I feel as though I'm pretending to have lasting issues such as anxiety, isolation, and depression. I even think that, um, I even think I don't tell my therapist enough about the good experiences I had in childhood. 
We'll get into that. Maybe if my therapist knew that my parents also had pizza parties, trips to the beach, and game nights, I would feel less like a liar. Maybe then she would know that the symptoms aren't real. Not sure why I do this. Having, I don't even mean to laugh, it's just, it's so common for us to think that we're making it into more than it is. Having an abusive family member or an abusive past doesn't mean that there were no positives. When you do EMDR, because that's what I'm doing now, um, your therapist will have you pull one or two really positive memories about from your life. And these can be from during the trauma time or not. Depends on just what it is for you. And if you don't have one, she'll have you create one. But I bring this up because those positive memories, when I'm finished with a session, help me kind of come back down. She's like, okay, let's go to your happy place. Let's go back to that memory. And she'll trigger the memory with a few phrases. And then we'll tap that in. And it feels better. Sounds weird, but it works. Now, I only say that to say that she does that with regularity. All my therapist practices EMDR, meaning she understands that because just because there was trauma in our life doesn't mean there wasn't positive too. Life is not black and white. Our life isn't fully shit filled with trauma and abuse or amazing, wonderful pizza parties, trips to the beach, stuff like that. It's not one or the other. It's always both. And all of us will have some positive memories. I mean, maybe some of us don't. Maybe we don't even have memory for like chunks of our life. But I'm just saying that life is not black and white. It's very gray in the middle. It's a little bit of both. And so if you think it would help, Talk to your therapist about this. Let them know. I feel like a liar. We also had good times. I want you to know there were good times in my life growing up. If I was your therapist, I'd have questions about that. I'd be like, why do you feel it's important for me to know that there were also good times? Are you feeling guilty about sharing about your trauma? What is it that's coming up for you? Why is there this pushback? You know, kind of why? Ask yourself, maybe journal about that. Why do I feel like I need her to know there were good things too? Is that what's feeding into me feeling like a liar? Or is it because I've been taught through life to minimize my experience? I don't know. Think about it. Tell your therapist about it. What you're experiencing isn't weird or crazy. We'll figure it out, okay? Now there was another add-on says, I understand this. Since I opened up to my therapist about my sexual abuse, that I have felt as though I've been lying about it. I feel like I've lied about it because I don't remember the whole event as I was around 10 years old. I've talked through it a few times with my therapist, but it's like I can never remember what I said with said about it prior to this time. Plus, there are some weird details I can remember so vividly, yet I can't tell you what happened throughout the day, like a story. Trauma memories, they're confusing. With the little details of not and not remembering what I've said before, it feels like I'm changing it or lying about what happened as I remember some of the little insignificant things. I also am really struggling with what to call this event as I was 10 and my dad was the one who did it to me. How would you go about this with a client who's questioning the whole story because they're not able to remember it at all and still getting little new details every so often that make no sense to what happened? How would you help clarify it? And what would it be called? Is it rape, sexual assault, incest? I'm so confused about it and how to bring it back up in therapy for fear that my therapist will think I'm lying. The I wonder if you're dissociating when you talk about it in therapy, if it's too overwhelming, because that's part of the reason probably why you don't remember what you've said before. It has nothing to do with what you're saying, or it's it's the fact that it's a very emotionally triggering thing to recall. So I'd let your therapist know about that. It's very common for that to happen, by the way. I have patients who will be making eye contact with me, talking about something, and then all of a sudden, eye contact becomes really difficult. 
face becomes blank and I know I've lost them. Like they've dissociated and we got to bring them back with however we've discussed hopefully prior to that. That's always the plan, right? So that's probably what's happening to you. Um, I'm sure it feels like you're changing it because you don't remember what you said before. But again, I'm going back to research to say that you can trust those repressed memories. The The amount of change that we've ever made to them is very, very minimal, if any at all. Although there is, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but research does prove, which it shows in the film Inside Out, which is why I love that film so much, is that every time we recall a memory, it is changed a little bit because not the memory itself, but our thoughts and feelings and reactions to the memory because us now touched it. And when we go back and we touch a memory, we have a, a physical and emotional reaction today. And that can kind of taint the memory a little bit, for lack of a better term. Now, okay, talk to your therapist about this. Let her know this is happening. I think you might be doing too much too fast. We want to maybe work on some grounding techniques. Now, on what to call it, you could call it any of those things. It depends on what feels the most real or truthful to you or all of them. Sometimes the naming of it is really powerful to the person who decides what to name it. And sometimes it's not. So you can decide what you think it, what feels real to you, what feels, maybe what feels the most tangible now, and it might change. That's okay. I know that some words can be way, way, way more triggering than others. So pick one that feels real for you. And you can always, like I said, you can always change it, okay? Final add-on says, I struggle with a similar issue. I had a memory or flashback of being sexually abused by my father come up many years after the fact. I struggle to talk about it because it's overwhelming, but also because I feel it's wrong to do so, considering it's I'm not even sure that it happened. I feel shameful and disgusted when the memory intrudes. My therapist also talked about emotional abuse happening in my childhood. It feels so wrong to call it abuse. I feel like it just makes it all worse. And I wonder, why does it help? How do I move on and deal with it? I have only two sessions a month and talking about this leaves me completely discombobulated. Oh, I'm so sorry. I only have two sessions a month. That's not enough. Um, now, the reason that we aren't sure it's happened and we feel shameful and disgusted and we've, you know, kind of struggling to come to terms with the fact that this happened, like you said, it, it feels so wrong to call it abuse. That's all part of that, like minimization, invalidation, shame that's associated with trauma. And we do that so that we can move forward, right? Why would someone who's supposed to love us, protect us, care for us, harm us? Why would they do that? They shouldn't. But unfortunately, they did. And so we can't really make sense of it. So we assume something must be wrong with us. And then we think, oh, you know, I'm making it into a bigger deal than it was. It wasn't that big of a deal. I'm okay. Ugh. Minimization, invalidation, shame thoughts. Tell your therapist this is happening. Tell them you're feeling overwhelmed, that you struggle to even call it abuse that that word doesn't feel real to you. I think there's some work you could do in between sessions to kind of what's like expand on the support or maybe ensure you're getting, you're working on things more regularly and not only twice a month. For example, I think in between sessions, you could journal about why it feels wrong to call it abuse. What would you like to call it? Let's think about that. It's okay to consider calling it something else. What else, what feels more real? And then why? Why does abuse not feel appropriate? What do you think it would take for it to feel appropriate? These are all things to consider. I also would consider, you know, 
the the disgust and the shame that comes up when that memory pops into your head? What are the stories you tell yourself about that? Those could be helpful to bring up in therapy. When I say the story you tell yourself, it's like, what's the explanation you give or the where's the blame placed? Or what do you say to yourself about that situation? Let your therapist know about that. And the reason that, what does it help, right? And I wonder, what does it help? The reason that we want to work through something, we don't just want to keep stuffing it down because like, hey, that's been working for us for so long. Why would I want to not do that now? That is because if we don't process it, it will continue to infect our lives. And that can look like a lot of things. It can infect our relationships. We can be adverse to people touching us, being in relationships in general, not wanting people close, or we can do the opposite. We can be clingy, overwhelming, really emotionally volatile. We can worry that people are going to abandon us all the time, or it can affect us in a ton of ways. Also, not to mention the fact that once we feel not under threat, flashbacks and memories and things start swirling and they can ruin our day. It can cause us to dissociate during a really important work meeting or have a panic attack during a presentation or at school or on a date or anything. And it just is upsetting in our life when working it through could make that go down and go away completely. That's why it helps. That's why it's important. That's that's the reason that we should be processing through. If stuffing things down and pretending they didn't exist worked, well, we wouldn't need therapy. But I think you'll be, if you're honest with yourself, and I'm honest with myself, I know that that does not work. And then I end up recreating the same scenario over and over with different people. And I keep engaging in relationships in a way that's not healthy. And I know it's not healthy and doing things I don't really want to do because I'm working out of an old narrative or an old story that I haven't talked about and processed through, right? And you could be reacting out of a trauma that you haven't processed. So be patient with yourself. Give yourself time. It does help and it does get better. But I think we're going to have to do some work in between sessions to kind of extend that work. And I would just encourage you to set aside the same time. Like, okay, you have two sessions a month. Are they on, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays or or Tuesdays at noon? Or I don't know. Keep that time every week to do that other homework. Okay? Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I've been with my therapist for over two years. And despite her being very consistent, reliable, and reassuring, I can't move past the feeling that someday she's going to say she's not going to see me anymore. Ooh, fear of abandonment. It's not so much a fear of her leaving, but more a fear that she'll finish with me before I'm finished doing the work that I need to do. Okay. She's the seventh therapist I've had. The first five all moved into new jobs and I was passed around. Apparently, the trust you build in the therapeutic relationship is transferable. It is not. And I'm so, so sorry. I left the sixth because I just didn't like her approach. This was 15 plus years ago, and it was through the public health care system. I see my current therapist privately. I click with her and have worked really hard to allow her in, but I feel like this one issue is what's holding me back from complete trust. I feel like I have to protect my heart from being hurt again, let down again, disposed of again. We've talked about this repeatedly, but I can't shake the thought, and I feel like it's really hindering the process. Do you have any thoughts on what might help? Yes. Talk to her about this because what you went through those six other therapists, it's trauma. It's traumatizing. It was at the very least triggering in some way. And of course, because that happened, you were passed around, you're worried it's going to happen again. If the past is any indication of the present or the future, right? It's scary. And you have every right to feel that. And so I would let her know that this happened. I'm sure she already does, but let's dig into it a little bit. 
I want you to tell her how you felt and what happened and what was going on and that it was so discombobulating and upsetting and triggering and overwhelming and dysregulating and blah, 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 right? All the things that came up and it might take some journaling through to kind of help you even yourself process it. But I just encourage you to not stuff it in anymore. We don't have to just, oh, I have a good therapist now and I pay private and it's all great. You like weathered a storm to get there. I'm so sorry that they did that to you. It's so unprofessional and unethical, but I know public healthcare systems can be so fucked. Um, But talk to her about it because again, it's not about like, how do we fix this so that we trust her? It's about processing what happened because rightfully so you're worried it's going to happen again. You're not crazy. This happened, you know, six other times. I guess five, the sixth you left, but still, that's really hard. Switching a therapist in general is really hard. I, I don't like it personally, and I'd assume nobody really likes it. So talk to her about it, and I, I promise you just getting it out there, journaling about it will help you feel better. Now, there was a comment on this as I can relate to this question because I was that way too. Only now my therapist is leaving because she's pregnant, and I won't be able to see her again. I am devastated about it because I know there is much more I have to work through, and it feels as if she's just leaving me as if nothing we worked through mattered. I see my therapist as a mother figure and it hurts to know that she'll be leaving me and I won't be able to see her anymore. How can I deal with the loss that comes with my therapist leaving me and what should I do? I'm scared of seeing a new therapist because ultimately they're gonna leave me as well and I'll be left with a broken heart that no one can fill. Okay, a lot to talk about here. Now the first piece is, I hope you still have sessions left with your therapist. I want you to tell her that you would like to properly, if she's not working anymore, if she's like taking maternity leave and she's gone for a few months, can we weather that, I don't know, or see somebody else in the interim till she's back? If she's quitting working completely, which I respect, that's fine, um, then make sure we do this. So let her know that you would like to properly terminate. That's what we would call it in the therapy space. You can call it whatever you want. Say, I know we're ending sessions. I wanna do it properly. Can we walk through all the progress we w- we've made? It would help me feel better because I feel like I haven't made any progress and I'm having a really tough time. Be honest. You can tell her kind of what you're going through with me that like it's hurting that you're leaving. I really saw you as like a consistent mothering figure in my life and you know, I'm having a hard time with it. But having her walk you through the process and the progress and all the things you've made over the years together or time together, I don't know how long you've been seeing her, but that can be incredibly motivating Also, it can be encouraging and supportive and you can see hopefully the work you did together for what it was without what your brain is doing is saying like, it's not important, nothing ever happened. This is a waste of my time and now she's hurting me. We're in emotion mind, we're being very reactive, but that can hopefully help you see how far you've come. And then I would even ask your therapist say, and can we put together some, you know, the rest of the treatment plan or the other goals because I feel like there's still stuff I need to work through and I want to be able to take this to my next therapist. You can ask for things like this, by the way. It's not only on you. Ask her for the stuff that she already knows. You can ask for her, say, how can I get a hold of you to transfer over my file to someone else? All that stuff. Let's get this information now before she's on maternity leave. Now, the other piece and probably the biggest piece of this is the thought that someone has to fill your broken heart. You said, I'll be left with a broken heart that no one can fill. We're going to need to do some inner child work at some point because this attachment and this thought that this mothering figure could fill the void that I would assume is left by your own mother, whether she was like emotionally unavailable or abusive in some other way, 
or maybe just wasn't around at all, we're going to need to be able to offer that love and support to ourselves. Because like I've said over and over, other people aren't predictable. We can't really count on them 100%. They're they're human. They're fallible. They're going to let us down. They're going to be unavailable. They're going to have babies and have to take breaks, right? Things are going to happen. And that's why we have to give it to ourselves because the only person we can count on 100% is us. And I don't say that to be like toxically independent. I mean, when it comes to our healing, we can only count on ourselves to do the work. No one can really do it for us. Your therapist can help support and guide. You have to do the hard work. You have to do the deep digging and the honest like conversations and the changing in behaviors and all that stuff is on us, right? As the patient, the therapist can only do so much. And so I really believe that I have an inner child workshop if you want. It's on my website, katiemorton.com. Just go into the shop. That could be really helpful. There's also books on Amazon and stuff. If you want to, you can go to my Amazon shop. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash katiemorton. The books that I recommend are there. You'll see the ones for inner child work. But do some of that work because that will help you prevent this type of situation from happening again where we count on someone else to fill a void and then, you know, they inevitably they're human they're gonna hurt us in some way and we will you know this will help us better manage so that doesn't happen there's another add-on it says therapists are having positive oh therapists have positive regard for their clients and provide a safe space to process difficult stuff but for me it's so hard to allow them deep enough to do certain work in therapy because i feel too vulnerable Also, I have this trust issue due to my childhood experiences of childhood sexual abuse and childhood emotional neglect. How do I work on this? Should I tell my therapist about the fear of being abandoned and trust issues? Yes, 100%. Let your therapist know. And then again, I think that inner child work stuff is going to be where it's at for you. I know it's kind of woo-woo for some people. You could even just start by, if you could go back in time, what would you like to tell younger you? Um, But if you can find photos or videos of yourself at a younger age and you can write letters back and forth, or you can imagine talking to him or her and like, what would you say to them at that age? What do you think they really wanted to hear? Can you remember what it was like to be that little person? You know, all of that's going to be incredibly beneficial because what's happening is obviously you have attachment issues, um, probably anxious attachment because we worry about being abandoned. But then there's also these trust issues. So we don't know who we can let in and for how long and what can we share. That inner child work is really going to help with this and help take down that anxiety level just a little bit so that we can participate more in therapy without feeling so reactive. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, if you have a limited number of sessions available to you, how can you decide what issues take priority? My university only offers six free sessions to students, and I don't have the money to pay for therapy, but I have a lot to work on. I have several traumas from my childhood, including a possible sexual trauma, divorce, and a parent with alcoholism who was abusive and ended up committing suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. Jesus Christ. I have count... I have countless of my own issues that have stemmed from that, including attachment issues, anxiety, depression, self-injury, and suicidal thoughts. How can I decide what to work on during those six sessions to get the most out of them that I possibly can? Sending love from England. Six sessions is so limiting. I would ask just out of curiosity, if there's ever, it never hurts to ask. Ask them if there are any situations that would allow for more free sessions. Because in my therapy, in my, uh, at Pepperdine University, in my university, when I was going to school, we were allowed, I want to say eight free sessions, but I got endless because my dad was really sick and he was dying. 
um, they can, at least in my experience, there are certain situations, diagnoses, things that can allow for longer term care. I went steadily through part of undergrad and all of grad school. So just ask, okay? So ask and let's see. The second, if they're like, no, 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 we only give six free sessions. My best advice to you is to get some tools to help you with the symptoms that are the most distressing. So take some time and consider what are the most upsetting things for you? Is it panic attacks because we have anxiety? Is it self-injury urges? We should probably do like get an impulse log going. Um, is it, you know, our depression, getting a tough time getting out of bed? What are those main symptoms? And you can get as specific as possible. Like it's hard for me to focus in class or it's hard for me to do X, Y, or Z. I, you know, we're going to need tools for those specific things. And that's what I would ask for because six sessions is not enough to dig into trauma. I'd like to say it is, but it's not. I don't want you to open everything up and then be left without any support. But I do want you to have some coping skills and ways to manage right now until we get out of school and hopefully have more money or more access to care that's cheaper or freer. I might even ask at your counseling center, is there a low cost clinic nearby or a free clinic? Let's ask about it. It doesn't hurt to ask, right? The worst we can hear is no. Um, but that's what I would ask for is just is is the tools to help now. And yes, I know it sucks and I wish we could process things, and but we just don't have time. Six sessions is just enough in my mind for you to get comfortable enough to talk about some of the symptoms, trial and error, some of those coping skills, and then be out of time. So that's what I would do, okay? There was a comment on this as, as an adult, my therapist recently told me that some view extended therapy as unethical, which is why they only offer limited sessions. How is having more than six sessions unethical? I imagine it's more stressful and unethical to ask someone to make progress in six sessions. I agree. I don't know what fucking bullshit your therapist is pulling. There is, there are some therapists that believe, and I even include myself in this, so hang in here. There are some of us that believe that extended therapy without any progress is unethical. Now, the big key there is without any progress, meaning the therapist will keep seeing you even though you're not getting better and like take your money for years. And I also believe like, think of um, psychoanalytic theory or psychoanalytic therapy. Really, really old. It's one of the first forms of therapy. It's actually been proven to not be that effective, by the way. And it also takes a shitload of time and energy. You have to have, I forget how many sessions a week. It's really expensive and it takes years. And there's a huge chunk of researchers, therapists, people in the field who are like, I don't believe that that's an ethical practice. People you in the States, at least, you'd be hell bound to find someone who practices it still in its purest form. There might be a few tools or techniques people pull here and there, but that's it because it's so long-term, so slow go, and it doesn't have a, the therapeutic relationship isn't really utilized, which we know now through research is way more important than the other things. So those are the only reasons I could see that being true. Six sessions is so short. That's, I would argue the average patient is in therapy for about a year. And that's just, I'm just law of averages and thinking of like my own patients because, and then I have patients that come in for a few months and then bounce out and back in and back, you know, it just depends on the issue. But if you're talking about like deep processing, I'd assume trauma therapists would say, oh, their average is like three years or something. I don't know, right? Things take time. I mean, I've been in therapy now for like three or four months and we're 
I've successfully processed one memory, but we're still working through it. And I don't even think of myself as like a higher needs. Like I just feel really weighed down by grief. So I'm not minimizing my experience. Don't you worry. I'm just saying that like, I don't have these, this deep trauma that needs to be processed. And I've already been in therapy for years and years off and on. So I do not believe it's unethical. I don't know why anyone would say that. Again, the only reasons would be if the therapy that's being practiced isn't beneficial, we're not getting better, but they continue to see you or they continue to see you even though you're just not doing well, or you're not participating, or it's not getting better. You know, we have to call attention to that as part of the therapist's job. But to see someone for more than six sessions is called therapy. And I think sometimes it takes three or four sessions to even know if you really like that therapist. So that, I, I think your therapist is incorrect. Okay, let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, can you talk about how to know when to stop therapy? It's been about a year and a half, and each week it is always very helpful. I started during a very low, hard, and isolated season, but I am now in a healthier environment and with, much, and with more supportive relationships around me. I've been working through a lot of past trauma, anxiety, times of depression, and have multiple chronic illnesses as well. I just feel like once we work through something, it either comes back up again in conversation or there's always something new that pops up to talk about. Going into therapy, I thought it would be a quick six-week thing, (laughs) but it keeps getting longer and longer because of all that's happened in my life, in the past or currently. I'm starting to worry that I rely on therapy to stay afloat. Life is always going to throw ups and downs, and I have hard days that are difficult to manage and also some little better days. I have not discussed this with my therapist as it is a topic that makes me anxious. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. The reason we would know we need to stop therapy would be because either we don't have anything else to work on. So it's almost like we don't even, we're just like chit-chatting, like just catching up like friends. It's not really therapeutic work. You don't really need it. Or we may need to stop therapy because, I mean, there's a ton of reasons, right? Like financial, I'm not going to get into those, but like we don't have anything else to talk about, or we don't feel like, we feel like we've made as much progress with this therapist as we can. Like I was just talking about before, like that plateau We might have to stop therapy and find someone else, not to stop therapy altogether, but to try a different type. So those are really the two main reasons. Um, Like, again, obviously there's others like if your therapist is bad or can't afford it, had to move away, blah, blah, blah. But all those things aside, the main reason that we stop therapy is because we don't need it anymore. And there's nothing wrong with staying in therapy for a longer period of time. I know six weeks sounds like a great amount of time. You're like, I can do this for six weeks. That's super short. That's awesome if you can. Again, no judgments. There's no time frame that we're looking to fit. But I do know that most people are in therapy for much longer than that. The only way to know that you're relying on therapy too much is if, well, even this I don't think is bad. Like if you don't think you can do it without your therapist, but that's why you're in therapy. I it's really hard for me to think of you relying on therapy too much. I guess it'd be more about an attachment or boundaries issue. It wouldn't be about relying on therapy that would concern me. It'd be more about like, you know, I have to call them every day or email them or I really struggle. That'd be more boundaries, attachment. I'm worried they're going to leave me. So I need to get worse so I can stay, right? I've had patients do that. Oh, time and time again, they're doing great. They're in recovery. Things are good. And then I start talking about titrating down sessions and, oh, we have, you know, suicidal thoughts again and our self-injury is back up. So if that's the case, then that's something to consider. But the fact that you have so much to work on 
and you feel like you're talking about the past and things are happening currently, that's just therapy. I'm glad you have this person. I'm glad you have this contact and this this connection. You you really like them. And it's still helpful. You said it's been about a year and a half. I'm that's amazing. If you still find it beneficial and you can afford it and it, then keep going. There's nothing to say that we have to stop at a certain time. I've been in therapy like pretty consistently for I don't know, let's say like 3 years when I was younger. Then I think I took like a two-year break and was back in for maybe six months. Then in a college, into grad school, three years straight up and twice a week for a little while. Then um, around the time Sean and I were getting married, back into therapy. So there's been a long, I've been in therapy off and on for a long time. And with my last therapist, Jana, before I moved to Texas and now I see Caroline, but I saw Jana for years and I would just call her up and make an appointment, you know, just every so often. And I would go for, I don't know, sometimes like two months, sometimes like three or four sessions. I'm like, oh good, you know, but usually it was more, it was at least three or four months. And then I'd say, I don't really have anything. She'd say, do you think you need to come anymore? And I'd say, no. And then we wouldn't make another appointment and off I'd go. So don't feel like you have any timeline or time frame with therapy. I don't like this belief that it's like an X number of sessions. Unfortunately, therapy is just not like that. It's not like, I don't know, like taking an antibiotic, you got to take it for 14 days or chemotherapy, you need six treatments. It's, it doesn't work like that. It's not, it's not that kind of a thing. Okay. Um, and I encourage you to bring this up with your therapist. I know it makes you anxious, but I think it could be really helpful in unpacking some of the beliefs you have about yourself because I think there's this underlying current in this question, I could be way off base, of the fact that like you don't want to put your therapist out or you, you're you worried that you're like relying on someone and maybe we've been taught to be more independent. So the fact that we actually need this and enjoy this is bad. There's got to be, I feel like there's some other belief system running here. And I think that could be helpful to unpack with her. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Katie, is healing from sexual abuse in the same process? Oh, is healing from sexual abuse the same process no matter when it happened? Like childhood versus adulthood. This happened to me as an adult from my partner. And I have recurrent nightmares. This might mean sexual assault, SA. And I have recurrent nightmares and flashbacks and a lot of shame. I see a lot of information about healing from childhood abuse, but I'm not sure if it's the same. People don't really talk about marital, um, the R word. I won't say because this person didn't write it out. So it can feel very isolating. And I'm ashamed to talk about it. I'm in therapy and my therapist does know about the abuse, but I'm still struggling. Any ideas for dealing with the nightmares and flashbacks? Thanks for your help. I'm so sorry. And there should be more information out there. For some reason, people tend to, even books and stuff, tend to gear toward childhood. Now, I my book, Traumatized, hopefully discusses more than that. I also talk about like marital abuse and things like that in Are You Okay? My first book too. You can pick those up at your library or probably get a used copy for pretty cheap. Um, but the process of it is going to be very similar. The only difference I could see would be that we might not have attachment issues in the same way we would if it was childhood based. Because when things happen in our childhood, it more intensively affects kind of like what I call like our blueprint for life, right? If we were abused as a kid, we go out into the world with this blueprint about what relationships look like and what should what should take place and what love is and all this stuff that our parents are supposed to give us as we slowly draw this blueprint, right? So when it happens in childhood, our blueprint is not a healthy blueprint. And so we work in adulthood to try to re 
right one. Now, when abuse occurs in adulthood and we have an abusive relationship, we were married and you know we were sexually assaulted, sexually abused in our relationship, we might still have a healthy blueprint from childhood. We just have to get back in touch with it. And that can be a little bit, there can be a little bit more hope there. When it comes to childhood abuse, sometimes I feel like having my patients see hope in things is going to be the hardest. But for you, that might be slightly easier. But overall, I feel like the process is going to be similar when it comes to the talking through the processing and the healing from the trauma itself. Trauma is trauma. And however you're experiencing the symptoms that you're experiencing, we're going to focus on those things and try to find ways to better manage or assuage those symptoms. And then, you know, talking through what happened and making sure that we're in a safe place to do so. And then when we engage in relationships in the future, trying to figure out a way to ensure it doesn't happen again, right? So a lot of it is very similar. Everyone's situation is going to be different, but I don't feel like there's this huge drastic shift from something that happens in childhood to adulthood. I do, however, think that the attachment kind of pieces um, may not be there for you in the way they would for younger people. So if you, or not younger people, but people who had it happen in childhood. So if you find when you're watching videos or reading books that you're like, oh, but this is about childhood, see if it still pertains to you. It may, it may not, but I think it's worth a look because like I said, trauma processing and moving through it is going to be very similar. Um, like trauma is trauma to the human body. And that's what we try to work through. Does that make sense? I hope so. If not, let me know. Oh, and then the last thing says, any ideas for dealing with nightmares and flashbacks? I want you to, flashbacks, unfortunately, I don't have like a tool to help you better manage them. They come up without like unannounced the only thing I know that can help them is to take better care of ourselves uh, ourselves up front, meaning make sure you're taking your medication as prescribed, make sure you're sleeping. I know these things are hard with trauma. I hate even giving you this list, but drink water, eat regularly, make sure that you're doing some of those basic self-care things, showering, moving your body. I want you to go for walks in places that feel safe, even if it's within your own home, walk around, stretch, move your body a little bit, shake it out, blah, blah, blah doing all of those activities and the self-care, the basic self-care can make us more resilient and less less prone or less vulnerable to flashbacks, okay? Then when it comes to nightmares, um, we can have rituals around bed that can help. But again, both of these will get lesser and get better as we work in therapy to process through the trauma. But nightmares can help or um, having rituals around bed can help with nightmares. So that means that we do the same thing around the same time. And it's important that we try to get to sleep around the same. It's like we're ready in our body to go to sleep. And that can mean that we drink tea, non-caffeinated, obviously decaffeinated. Um, We Maybe we shower, then we put on lotion, we get into bed, we listen to a song and we lights out. Um, do your best to not look at your phone right before bed. I know I'm not any better than you. I'm just telling you what I know. Um, get rid of any disruptions as much as possible. You know, if an animal sleeps in your bed and they wake you up a lot during the night, you might not want to have them in bed for a little bit. I know that sucks, but this waking, sleeping, waking, sleeping can pull you into um, nightmares more quickly, like get into that that area of our sleep cycle. So that can be helpful. Um, and then one of my key tidbits is to, as you're falling asleep, 
tell yourself a great memory or story. You can make it up. You can recall something. Maybe one of your favorite vacations that you took. What did it feel like? Where were you? What were you wearing? What were you eating? What did you smell? Use all your senses. And like I said, you can make it up. Pretend you had a trip to Maui. You flew first class and oh, it was so nice. I don't care. Make it up and tell me all about it. Pulling yourself into that memory or made up memory right before bed can sometimes set your dream off onto a happy, wonderful place. So give that a try. Okay. Now there was a comment that says, as an add-on, is it possible to have forgotten childhood abuse, but then gone on to experience it as an adult, which I do remember. I know that I've always struggled with disgust issues around my body since as early as I can recall and struggled with anorexia on and off throughout my teens and adulthood. And I have PTSD around my ex-partner, but I feel like my therapist is thinking I have earlier trauma that I can't remember. How do I deal with that possibility? It freaks me out that I can't remember anything specific, but I really do want to heal my ongoing issues around sexual aversion and body disgust. Thank you so much for all you do and listening to my rambling question. Of course. Um, I guess my best advice is to think of it as being a detective. We're not judging. We're not jumping to conclusions. We don't know if something happened. It might not. Sometimes I have to caution therapists against saying to someone that they think they have something. Because, you know, I think this happened to you. It's possible. They could say, you know, I see a lot of patients who also have abuse in their childhood. I don't know. Maybe that could have happened to you. Maybe there's not that much memory. The maybes are a little bit softer and safer for me than saying like, I'm pretty sure something like this happened. Because that can cause distress like you're experiencing. We can feel anxious and overwhelmed, but just the thought of it. Like, oh my God, how come I don't remember? Right? All that stuff can come up. And so really, I would focus on the experiences that you do remember. Let's work on processing those. Process the symptoms that are bothering you now. If something did happen, then those memories will come up on their own as we're curious, not judgmental, about our experience. As we talk about what's happened now, do we have flashbacks of other things? Like those would be other indicators that something did happen. Again, we might not ever recall a memory. We might not have memory of it. Maybe nothing happened. You know, I don't want therapy to ever feel like it's pushing a certain story or agenda onto you. I want you to feel free to explore it and see what comes up. So every time you find your brain going, well, what if something be like, I'm just in this process and I remember this one and I want to work it through and that's what I'm going to do. And I know it's hard and I know it's uncomfortable, but just hang in there. It'll be okay. Let's be curious, not judgmental as we learn about ourselves and our past experiences. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hi, Katie, is it possible that all of my struggles and diagnosed conditions, OCD, ADHD, and autism are in fact just behaviors caused by childhood trauma, emotional neglect, abandonment, and lack of supportive communication from my family? Thank you for all that you do. Of course, this is a great question. Trauma, especially childhood trauma, can have such a broad effect on us. And I often think of trauma as kind of the root of an issue. And out of that root comes all sorts of symptoms, which could be diagnosed OCD, ADHD. Now, autism itself, I don't know because I don't specialize in that. So I don't want to lump it in the the same bucket only because the more we learn about autism and even kind of ADHD, the more we learn that it's like working with our brains, not against our brains. And I don't, I know that there's different genetic predispositions for that and the way that it is, like how it really operates in our brain. A lot of people don't even like to call them, you know, mental illnesses or conditions. Um, 
But I do believe that there is a lot that can be created or caused by trauma because we have to think of what childhood trauma does to us, right? When we're really young and we're not only uh, super vulnerable, right? When we're little, we don't have a lot of resources. We can't really protect ourselves. We depend a lot on our family to take care of us. Now, when they don't do that, we essentially have no safe space. We don't really feel okay or safe or secure enough to be able to develop a true sense of self and explore the world without fear, right? Things are taken from us because of that trauma. And I believe that that can lead to some of the most common mental illnesses that I believe are born out of trauma are borderline personality disorder, eating disorder, self-injury, OCD, depression, anxiety. Boom. Those would be the ones I'd hit first. Does that mean that ADHD and autism couldn't be part of that? No. I'd have to do more research to find out, but I bet you could also look into Google Scholar and put in some of, put uh, autism and trauma and see what comes up. Because I do believe that they could be caused by your childhood trauma. That doesn't minimize the symptoms or make it less than real. It just means that that is kind of the root that has grown into this tree with all these different symptoms. And it's it's not uncommon. I wish it was, but it's not. And I'm so sorry you're going through all of that. I hope you can find a helpful therapist to c- connect with, feel supported by, and to work through that. Now, there's a comment on this is as an add-on, when we are born into an abusive family, like the one mentioned above, how can we ever really know if our struggles as an adult with stemming and poor and stemming, S-T-I-M, I hope I'm saying that right, stemming, and poor eye contact are from autism or an attachment disorder. Thank you. Uh, The quick answer to that would be to be properly diagnosed. So that what that means is that when we, if we struggle with some kinds of autism or attachment-based issues, we want to be tested by someone who tests for those things. Now, when I was in school, the reason I didn't continue on to get my PhD, so you call me Dr. Katie, um, is because, first of all, the pay wasn't that much different and I was paying for my school, but also I didn't really care to do mostly research and testing. Now, that's not to say that psychologists can't do more therapy stuff, but I don't need that degree in order to do what I want. Do you know what I mean? But a ton of psychologists do a ton of research and a lot of assessments. We call it testing and assessment. And you need to find someone who does testing and assessments for autism or autism spectrum disorder, ASD, and attachment disorders. There are tons of psychological tests and assessments that we can get um, completed. Uh, Most of them, if we're looking for proper diagnoses and treatment, are covered by insurance. Some of them aren't, and they can be kind of expensive. So ask ahead of time to make sure you don't get in a situation where you show up for a test and you're like, that's going to be $300. And you're like, what? Um, But that's really the way to know. Because again, and it could be from both, right? And it, it can be hard to tease that out. Now, from my perspective, this is sans testing and assessment. I run through the symptoms of each one. I talk with my patient about where we think things could have come from, and we try to tease it out. Does it mean that we'll always have a really clear answer and be like, oh, it was definitely this or that? Not always, but usually in conversations like that, when we feel free to explore and ask questions and talk about symptoms, we do have some increased clarity. And so a lot of my patients, when we're trying to figure out if some, if it's one or the other, like I had a patient who was a teenager and we would talk sometimes, how much do you think that is you being a teenager and how much of it do you think is your eating disorder? And I know you're like, how are those related? But the reactivity and the, just the way that it presented in our life, that was worth asking. And it, it 
a lot of it were like, I think it's just from being a teenager. And some we were like, oh, I think that's more eating disorder based. And so having a conversation, being honest as much as you can and talking it out can hopefully help you figure out where it's coming from as well as that testing. Okay. Final question. Question number seven says, Katie, how do you deal with not being open uh, oh, with not being open up due to having trust issues, so not being able to open up. I have been seeing my therapist for a while now, and I still haven't woken up. She suggested seeing a new therapist, but I had a therapist before her, and it was the same. No matter how much I like both of them, I know I can, and and know I can trust them. I just can't open up. I feel no matter what therapist I see, I'll always be just surface level because it's not them, it's me. I don't know what to do. I thought it was just about. I thought about just quitting therapy again because I feel like I'm wasting her time. What are your thoughts? For context, I was sexually abused and I struggle with depression and anxiety. Thanks for all you do. I love your videos. Of course. Um, I have a lot of thoughts. Don't quit therapy because you said it's not them, it's me, right? So it's your trust issues that are getting in the way of you being able to participate in therapy. It's not unheard of. It's incredibly common. My best advice is kind of twofold. The first part is going to be work you're going to need to do on your own because I want you to journal today if you can, but sometime this week, I want you to take some time to journal and consider what it would look like if you did open up. If you talk to a therapist, what are you afraid might happen? Let's play it out. In cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, we often do the play it out where you, what's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? Do that because trust issues are just fear-based, right? And fear is this, uh, we're anticipating, we're making assumptions about the future, right? We're trying to predict that it's not going to go well. So we have to prove to our brain that it could go well, but we can't just tell it it's going to go well. It's not going to believe us. We have to play it out. So play it out, best case, worst case, most likely case. And sometimes taking away the kind of like unknown can make us feel a little bit better. So that's first part. Second piece is talk to your therapist about this. It sounds like you probably have, but not about your trust issues with them. I encourage you to talk about trust in other relationships. Let's dive into that. That would be my first order of business with you if I was seeing you, is how are we in other relationships? And if those are fine, then what's different about this one? And that would be part of your homework again, to journal about if it is different, how is therapy different from your other relationships? Arguably, it's more confidential than others, and they're actually trained to help you. But where else have we found ourselves struggling to trust? Who has broken our trust? I mean, obviously there was sexual abuse, so somebody broke your trust. Why are we applying it here? Right, we have to ask ourselves those tough questions. And again, it's not about having the answer and just being able to trust. Sure, that's the goal, but we have to understand it first. Where is it coming from? Why is this showing up for me? What would it look like if I did trust? Who have I been able to trust before? Why could I trust them or why not? let's do some detective work on our past because our past is becoming our present and we need to figure it out, right? We need to understand it instead of just trying to shove it aside. I think that's the problem sometimes is we have an issue in therapy that's holding us up and we think, oh, push harder, do more, it'll get better. No, it can make it even stronger because then whatever defense mechanism that is, is like, whoa, 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 we're under threat even more intensely and tries to shut it down in a bigger way when really what we maybe needed to do pause, seek to understand, ask ourselves questions about this defense mechanism. What purpose does it serve? Why does it make me feel more safe? What would it mean if I didn't use this? What am I afraid is going to happen, right? 
be a curious, not judgmental about your response because your response is there for a reason. It's there to protect you. But we need to slowly prove to yourself that that response is actually hindering you now. It's almost like my patients who have eating disorder behaviors or something, for a while it kept us alive. Thank you. Thank you, eating disorder. You got me through that really shitty traumatic time in my life. You helped me focus on something different. But now I'm getting older and I'm not in that situation anymore. And all I feel is the weight of carrying this eating disorder with me. And it's ruining my relationships and my life. And I can't do things that other people want to do. I can't participate the way I want. And then it starts to impede us. And so this lack of trust protected you. And now it's in your way. And so we have to learn why it was there, what it was protecting us from, what purpose it has been serving, and then maybe tell yourself why it's not serving you now. But take your time with it. No judgments. Let's not quit therapy. Let's keep with it. But talk with your therapist more about trust as a whole, what it means to you, how it's been represented in your life, when it's been broken, when it's not been broken. How are those relationships different from your therapeutic one? All that good stuff. I think in there, you'll find some ways to slowly move forward. No rush. We're not here to rush. but We're here to understand. Okay? Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for all of your support and sharing this podcast. It really means the world. I love you all. Have a wonderful week. Do your homework. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>